Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I am Laura Coates, and this is CNN Tonight. And frankly, it's long been the subject of bitter, bitter political debate. How do you deal with an influx of asylum seekers and other migrants, otherwise known as human beings, flooding to our country? And what do you do with the ones who are already here? Do you round them up somehow, put them on planes and buses and dump them in some other state? A liberal northern state, perhaps? A so-called sanctuary city so that they can figure it out? Well, what I just described is exactly the strategy of some Republican governors on the far right of this divide, governors like you see on the screen. Governor Greg Abbott of Texas and Ron DeSantis of Florida. The latter declaring today, quote, every community in America should be sharing in the burdens. It shouldn't all fall on a handful of red states, infusing the political discussion, of course. The real question is, for many Americans out there, do you think DeSantis is right? We're going to hash that out in a moment here. But was it right for both he and Abbott to do the following? Texas governor sent two buses of asylum seekers to the home of Vice President Kamala Harris. It's not the White House, of course. It's the U.S. Naval Observatory in Washington, D.C. And it happened today. And then drove away, left them there. They apparently had no idea where they were or why they were at that particular location, let alone perhaps its significance, politically speaking. And last night, Florida's governor flew two planes with an estimated 50 migrants into the small island of Martha's Vineyard off the coast of Massachusetts. There was no heads up they were coming, according to local officials. And it set off quite a scramble on the vineyard, trying to get shelter and food for those migrants, all believed to have originated from Venezuela. Now, today, here is what Governor DeSantis said. We are not a sanctuary state. And it's better to be able to go to a sanctuary jurisdiction. And yes, we will help facilitate that transport for you to be able to go to greener pastures. All those people in D.C. and New York were beating their chests when Trump was president, saying they were so proud to be sanctuary jurisdictions, saying how bad it was to have a secure border. The minute even a small fraction of what those border towns deal with every day is brought to their front door, they all of a sudden go berserk. Well, the White House condemned both moves. They didn't go berserk, but they did call it a cruel, premeditated political stunt. That is, quote, disrespectful to humanity. And of course, as you might expect, the reaction on the Hill, well, it's Washington, D.C., so it's falling along party lines. Sharing the burden. This is a national responsibility. It should be a national burden. This is the party that also speaks about, uh, you know, the the sanctity of life. Well, I guess they don't care about the lives of these people. It's a terrific idea. Um, I don't know how else to get President Biden's and Vice President Harris's attention to the 
broken borders. Mistreating and being inhumane to those who are immigrating to this country does not reflect well on the governors who are sponsoring this conduct. I mean, you certainly got the attention of Vice President Harris, of course, and so many others on this very issue. But we also know why Texas Governor Abbott chose Vice President Harris's home for his latest decision to drive migrants to a different place, noting that there are just many different states between Texas and, say, Washington, D.C. In a statement, he railed against her for recently claiming that our southern border is secure. He says, as our, quote, supposed borders are, unquote, she has yet to even visit the border to see the firsthand impact of the administration's border policies, which he describes as open borders. And there is plenty of criticism heading that direction as well for the decision not to visit the borders. But what made Florida's governor choose Martha's Vineyard, of all places? Or perhaps should I say, who? Next stop in the equity train has got to be Martha's Vineyard. You probably imagine Egertown is pretty diverse. I mean, the Obamas live on the island, right? No. As of 2019, only 3% of all people, all residents in Egertown were born outside of this country. They are begging for more diversity. Why not send migrants there? In huge numbers. Hmm. I wonder if that's coincidental that that was mentioned by him and then the flights arrived. Well, whatever or whomever the reason, these are moves that fire up all sides and, of course, the electorate as well. So let's get a take and a mix of those takes as well. Here with me now is former U.S. Senator Doug Jones, a Democrat from Alabama. He was also a U.S. attorney. CNN political analyst April Ryan is the White House correspondent at The Grio. And Doug High is a former RNC communications director. Well, I'm glad you're all here. I don't want to talk about this by myself because, listen, there are there's so many points here. First of all, I know my geography is not always perfect, but there's a lot of states in between a Texas or a Florida till you get to those different places. Him talking about this as a way to share the burden, as he talked about, talking about Governor Santos, pointing out not just the red states, that made it political even more than the obvious. Is there anything other than a stunt being pulled? You know, beyond politics and party, let's look at the infrastructure. Let's look at Martha's Vineyard. Martha's Vineyard is an island with six towns. It doesn't have the infrastructure like a city of Boston, okay? It has a hospital, 28 beds, and three critical care beds as well. It has a food pantry, but those asylum-seeking migrants are in a church in Edgartown right now that has bathrooms, no showers, Mm. okay? So that's that's an issue all into itself. The, 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 the You're saying the idea of not bringing them to Boston, where there may have been infrastructure, infrastructure. seems very intentional about why Edgartown. So right. why Edgartown, do you think? Why Edgartown? Well, um, there are many uh, persons, very famous household names, that have homes there. But Edgartown is a very wealthy enclave. But it is a vacation town. The majority of the island, even Edgartown, has left. Uh, Tourism is the second uh, largest portion of their industry there Mm. under, what is it, uh, construction, because many of the homes are older and construction is number one and tourism is number two. Many of those who 
traveled there for the summers are gone. And those about 23,000 people who are on the island who are year rounders are there and they're helping the people. But the problem is showering and other issues. They don't have, you know, restaurants are not open like they used to be. The markets are closing earlier. You know, there are people there, but it's not the kind of infrastructure that you would have during the summer. But they're thinking about moving the people to the shelters for them to get showers. That's that's the reaction from the people who were there, right? I want to know about the motivation to send. And Ron DeSantis, Governor um, Greg Abbott, this is something, and there is criticism, and I believe there's fair criticism about why there has not been the, the visiting to the border to see the issues that are there. Um, people perceive it as porous. Vice President Harris has been criticized throughout the entire administration, given her repertoire includes this issue. Why do you think this is thought of as a political, viable solution to get this done? It's not a solution. Well, may, make no mistake. This is not a solution. If it was a solution, they'd be picking up the phone and they would call in the administration, say, we got to have some help here. Okay, they don't have the infrastructure there. We have some makings of this and we can do some more. They don't want a solution. The point is to do stunt. It's a pure political stunt. And remember, this is not just states between Texas and uh, Massachusetts. He's in a plane all the way from Florida somewhere. These weren't these were. 50 people, just 50. It was not like it was the thousands. 50 people that he, that the Florida governor picked up in Texas and flew around to get to Martha's Vineyard. Mm. And, and it's, it's really a political stunt. Now, having said that, I agree with you. There is a lot more that needs to be done on this, uh, uh, Laura. A lot more that needs to be done. But people have to start talking to each other and quit using these poor people as political punching bags. I mean, that's the biggest issue that we Well, when you think about that, Doug, I mean, think, what's the strategy? You're a strategist on the Republican side. And it, there's no surprise that people have very visceral reactions to our immigration policy in this country. The irony is certainly there that we are a nation of immigrants, as they like to say, and yet there is a visceral reaction to asylum seekers, even when it means they don't have the same viewpoint as it relates to overseas. But I wonder, in thinking about this, this idea of distribution of what he calls, what they have called the burden, is that a winning argument among the Republican electorate or even independents who are coveted? Well, in the Republican electorate, it is a massively popular argument to make. And it's not, it's not even that it's not a solution. It's not designed to be a solution. Correct. It's designed to be a, a ploy or a stunt. And I'm tend to be pro-political stunts, by the way. But in this case... Um, <laughs> this, but, but not this one? But, this is not the stunt you want to do? Because clearly you're using people for pawns in, in this situation, um, political pawns. And if you're jockeying to run for president, as we have two governors in Texas and Florida who are clearly trying to do, this is how you do it. But until Congress, whether it's a Democratic Congress or a Republican Congress, steps in and, and enacts some immigration legislation, which it essentially hasn't done since Ronald Reagan's uh, administration, there will be no solution. There's more the Biden administration can do and should do, but it starts with Congress. When I worked for Eric Cantor, it's one of the reasons that he lost was the issue of immigration. When we as House Republican leadership brought to our members a four-point plan on immigration, our members told us at, at our retreat in Williamsburg, we don't want to do this. This conversation is over. Mm. And it was. You've but always you, been. Go ahead. But, excuse me. But, but Doug, I, I don't disagree that Congress is the ultimate solution because that's what the Constitution mm-hmm. says. It's a federal government problem. But these governors have senators in the Congress. Mm-hmm. These governors have members of Congress uh, that it, represent their state. They ought to be trying to figure this solution out instead of pulling the political stunts. But instead, you I saw Senator Rubio, Senator Cornyn, and they're cheerleading this stuff. And that is not seeking the solution. Why, no, April? Agreed. Why? 
one thing, this is you can't just say that we're going to fix the system in two days with with sending people to the vice president's house and to Martha's Vineyard. The system has been broken for a long Mm -hmm. time. And the issue is both sides can't come together on the rationale of human, uh, the humane part of of dealing with asylum seekers, for one, Mm -hmm. and then trying to figure out who stays and who goes. And let's look at this. The people, the, 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 the situation with, with migration, the problem is we have more people who are overstaying their visas. And let's make that point. Mm-hmm. More people overstaying their visas than people crossing the, the border. Mm-hmm. So and that's the piece that people don't talk about. Instead, it's about race. It's about where you come from. And that is part of the piece that is not included with those who have overstayed mm-hmm. their visas. Let's, if you're going to talk about the system really get to the point where it's the problem, more of the problem Mm -hmm. than what's happening. Race is part part of the conversation as well, obviously, because we know about the theories of the browning of America, so to speak, the idea of the us versus them that continues to penetrate what we have. We've got, you know, political um, vengeance on the brain for so many people. But in the end, I just wonder how the administration is going to deal with this, knowing that there is the midterm elections coming up soon. Mm -hmm. And I don't mean that everything is centered around the midterm election. That is but a sort of an arbitrary deadline we as voters give our members of Congress. But do you think they have to do something now in the administration before the the midterms? What can they do? Exactly. I mean, I think it's it's an issue that they're going to have to deal with eventually. I don't think that this is such an important issue for just humane purposes. Mm -hmm. They need to have a serious sit down with Congress and others if they will do it before the midterms and try to see if there is something that they can do. I don't see that that happening. Mm -hmm. They're going to have to take this. But DeSantis and and, and Abbott, this is a this is a beyond midterm uh, Mm -hmm. issue for them. This is not going to this issue is not going to drive the midterms. It's going to drive what happens in Texas, maybe. It might drive, you know, DeSantis is doing it because Charlie Crist is giving him his, a run for his money. Beto's giving Abbott a run for his money. That's the, the only two states. That the, in my I view, I may be wrong. I'd, I'd argue that. they'd be doing it anyways, but yes. Well, well also for the future as well, though. 2024. Mm-hmm. It is for 2024. We're going to talk about exactly. this next. Everyone stick around. we got more to come. Uh, a top U.S. senator has now put his party, let's just say, in quite a pickle ahead of the crucial midterm elections by flip-flopping on what can be described as an explosive issue. States should decide the issue of abortion. I think we should have a law at the federal level that would say after 15 weeks, no abortion on demand. Did you hear that? There were some Republicans slapping their forehead, asking the question why. And what on earth Lindsey Graham was thinking when he introduced this bill this week to restrict abortion rights on a federal level. Why he's doing this now and what Republicans think about it in particular and whether states should really decide the issue. We'll talk about all of it next. Look. I'm sure abortion is the last issue that most Republicans want to be talking about right now, especially as we head into what's known as the home stretch of the midterm elections. So then begs the question as to why Senator Lindsey Graham proposed a bill this week to ban abortion nationally after 15 weeks. 
Tonight, we have brand new insight into his decision. A source familiar with Graham's thinking says that he believes that he was tr- that trying to sidestep the issue is just, well, it's not working for the GOP and that most Americans agree with his proposal. As well, Republicans, not so much. Listen to this. It's just an issue that people are talking about. But ultimately, the, the campaign's going to, the election's going to be about this ridiculous inflation. I don't think there's anything at the national level, for sure, that comes anywhere close to getting 60 votes. I support this going out to the states mm-hmm. and letting we the people decide. I think most of the members of my conference prefer that this be dealt with at the state level. Well, back with me now, Doug Jones, April Ryan, and Doug High. So if most of his colleagues prefer the state level, I'm, I'd like to get, try to get into the mindset of Senator Lindsey Graham here as to the why now. I hear you laughing at trying to get into the mindset of Senator Lindsey Graham. You don't want to go there, but why do you think now? Why now? Uh, he hasn't gotten attention in a good week. And so if you're Lindsey <laughs> wow. Graham, I mean, that's it. You have to feed the attention machine. And, and I'll tell you, you know, the day that he said that was the day that uh, the Biden administration was having at the White House. I think you were there, um, April, uh, an event on the Inflation Reduction Act, where we got terrible inflation news yet again. That should have been the focus for all Republicans. And instead, uh, my phone was filled with texts from other people who've worked on Capitol Hill and Republican campaigns with a lot of people using words that rhyme with truck about what <laughs> Lindsey Graham was doing. It takes Republicans completely off what their message should be. Inflation. Crime, and as we were just talking about, the border. Stick with those three issues and you'll win. So why? Doug, it takes them off to what their message should be from a political standpoint, but it puts them right on the message of actually where they are Mm -hmm. and what they want to do. And so to that extent, I... Good. Thank goodness that Lindsey Graham has at least got the fortitude to say, this is what we're going to do. This is how we're going to do it. This is what, if, you, if we get control of the Senate and the House, this is what we're going to do. Because you Every, want them to show the electorate who they really everybody are. Everybody should show the electorate who they really are. Look at everything going on with election deniers walking back in New Hampshire. Look at what uh, Doug uh, Masters is saying in Arizona about the abortion issue. Wiping their websites about their previous uh, statements on abortion and the Roe decision and Dobbs. You know, look, people want their politicians, their candidates, their elected officials to be straight with them, mm-hmm. to be straight, to just tell them. And if they vote for them, great. But if they don't, they can find somebody else. Well, let me tell you, on that, I want to hear from you on this, April, but I want to play for the audience. Remember, Republican Don um, Boldick, he just won the GOP primary in New Hampshire. Let's just go a little bit of, and th- keep in mind, these two clips I'm going to show you are like less than 30 days apart. Here's how he addresses the idea of being straightforward. I signed a letter with 120 other generals and admirals saying that Trump won the election, and damn it, I stand by my election. I've done a lot of research on this, and I have come to the conclusion, and I want to be definitive on this. The election was not stolen. Was there fraud? Yes. Unfortunately, President Biden is the legitimate president. April, I mean, I, I yeah. can hear, I can see. I, I, what, what is he showing the electorate he is there? Um, well, what he's showing is that he wants to win an election. How mm. about that? He wants to pull in independents the way it looks and possibly Democrats. For him to go totally against what he said just 30 days ago, I mean, there's Instagram, there's Facebook, there's the Twitter to show you what he said. But now Receipts. He, <laughs> yes, as the young people say. Receipt. Oh, you call me young. Thank yes. you. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. I'm, I'm there with you. I'm there with you. But at the end of the day, 
Either way, one of those comments will hurt him. Mm. Because if you flip-flop within a 30-day period, people wonder. But what he is trying to do right now is pull in those who can help him win in that general election. What End it shows, Lori, it's, it's a complete lack of character. Mm-hmm. Period. Complete lack of character. You said it. Not it, is, <laughs> it is saying one thing to get a uh, vote, saying mm-hmm. another to try to pull in some other Some vote. would call that politics, sir. I, well, then we but need to change our politics. Period. We, need to, we need to make sure people like that are not elected to the United States Senate. How in the hell are people in New Hampshire going to trust anything he says? When he goes to the floor of the Senate and says something, is, is, is a poll going to change his mind the minute he walks out? But and unfortunately, that, that seems to be the case with a lot of politicians well, lately. Well, that's, a, that's an election. example problem. of that is Lindsey Graham. What was his position exactly. on a national yeah. abortion bill 30 days ago? Very different than now. But yeah. operationally in a campaign, and I apologize because we have somebody who was a candidate here, candidates do not have time to do a lot of research. Exactly. They are raising money. They're going to events. What happens is either they say what they always thought or somebody put a piece of paper in front of them. So, if a candidate tells you they've done a lot of research, they're lying to you. So here your point is, by him saying, I've now done the research and had this epiphany that it was not a stolen election, that somebody feeding it to him? Or that he just realizes... It's, it's one or the other, but it wasn't based on him doing a lot of research. He didn't go to yeah. the library and pull out an encyclopedia it, and, and fish files and things like that. It is you pure call BS. It is well, pure. here's the thing about that. And I, and I wonder, because April's thing, I think, was really, really poignant. And that is one of those statements will hurt him. One of I those mean, statements I mean, and of course, focus is on the idea of the collective, of the lack of character, as you described it, the idea of flip-flopping. Mm-hmm. The question is... How, how will you know and how does the electorate, how do you think they'll know which one is successful? Obviously, election will tell us, but which one will be successful? It's a the long, lie or the revelation? But it's a long time. I mean, it's a short period of time, but we have how many days, how many hours, how many minutes until the general election? And anything, there's that hidden variable that could pop up and it could catch him in that moment. One way when he said, oh, he's not legitimate, or the other way where he said he was. So we just have to wait and see how this plays out it, over the time. It's period. no longer, he just made it no longer about whether the election was stolen. Mm. It is solely now about trust. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's what Maggie Hassan will talk about. Few people have a St. Paul on a road to Damascus epiphany, which he has tried to have, okay? <laughs> it is about trust, and that's what you will hear from the Hassan campaign from this point on. Well, we'll see if it dri- drives the point home and who it convinces, which answer will actually hurt him. Stick with us. And also, new tonight, a special master now appointed in the Trump Mar-a-Lago case after a legal feud. Who it is and what the selection means for DOJ's criminal investigation, we'll explain next. All right, look, there are some big developments tonight in the Mar-a-Lago documents case. There will be a special master to independently review the more than 11,000 documents that were seized by the FBI from former President Trump's Florida home. And we now know not just that there will be one, we know who it will be. Federal Senior Judge Raymond Deary. Now, he was one of the two picks put forward by Trump's team. And now the clock is ticking. He has a November 30th deadline to finish his review of the documents. And Daniel will be looking to see if any of them should be shielded from criminal investigators because of attorney-client or maybe executive privileges, which is the point of contention. All of this also means the judge rejected a DOJ demand to allow prosecutors to continue their review of the classified documents, now teeing up 
an appeal. CNN political correspondent Sarah Murray joins me now. Sarah, does this now mean the DOJ is left sitting on its hands? Well, not entirely. You know, that was sort of what came out of this. You know, the judge basically said, look, I am not going to change my decision. You do have to pause your review of these classified documents as part of this criminal investigation. But she also said it does not restrict the government from conducting investigations or bringing charges based on anything other than the actual content of the seized materials. Hmm. So she's saying, you know, you can talk to witnesses about where the documents were stored, about how they were moved. But what you can't do is show these documents to witnesses in interviews. You can't be taking these documents to make a presentation before a grand jury. And as you know, that does make it very difficult to move forward with an actual criminal investigation. Especially because what is the that you're telling people about? The idea, the hypothetical, there's something I could show you, but I can't. Is the idea here that the national security concerns are simply not top of mind for the judge? Because stopping this means they can't now undertake that continuing notion of were is national security compromised in some way. Right. I mean, the Justice Department had argued that you really needed to let DOJ, to let the FBI be able to look through these classified documents if you wanted them to do a full damage assessment with the national you know, security team. They're saying these things are not separate. We need to be able to work together with the intelligence agencies. And the judge really isn't buying it. She's essentially saying, I'm not buying that the damage assessment to national security is going to be impeded. She said, first, there's been no actual suggestion by the government of any identifiable emergency or imminent disclosure of classified information arriving from Donald Trump's allegedly unlawful retention of the seized property. Instead, and unfortunately, the unwarranted disclosures that float in the background have been leaks to the media after the underlying seizure. Hmm. So she's making sort of clear in this that she has been more concerned about the leaks she's seen uh, around this investigation, this whole special, special master process, and sort of giving that almost more credence and the Justice Department's argument that, hey, this decision that you have put forward could actually impede the intelligence agency's ability to do their damage assessment. That strikes me as odd. You would be more concerned about a potential leak to the media than you would about the potential leak of classified and top-secret documents. And it just occurs to me that if you're talking about a DNI assessment of what could compromise our national security, is the judge saying that she wants to have the proof as opposed to the probable cause and the investigation at this point in time? She's sort of saying, you know, look, I'm not just going to take the government's word for it that these documents are classified, that there has been, you know, the Trump team has sort of put forward the notion that Donald Trump can declassify any documents. They don't actually say in the court documents that he did declassify them. So the judge is saying, look, I want the special master to weigh in on all of this first. What do you know about this person, though, the judge? Is is this the person who is the special master do we know anything about this person yet? Yeah, I mean, this is a senior judge who was put forward by the Trump team, right. but this is, you know, one of the Trump put forward two candidates. DOJ said, look, we are not okay with one of these people. They do not seem to have the relevant experience here. They said, we are okay with Judge Deary as being the candidate here. You know, this is someone who has experience on the bench, who has experience dealing with classified materials. So it's someone DOJ felt comfortable with. I don't know if we can call that progress or not. Sarah Murray, thank you so much. (laughs) Everyone, coming up, our legal and political pros are going to weigh in on tonight's rulings and what they mean for Trump and the DOJ, and I hope national security going forward when CNN Tonight returns. All 
All right, everyone. We now know who is going to review the documents seized from Mar-a-Lago, and we know when that person is supposed to be done, and we know what the DOJ can't do in the meantime, and that is review those classified documents. Let's break it all down with what happens next. The former federal prosecutor and defense attorney, Shan Wu, Doug Jones, and Doug High, the Duggies, are back here <laughs> as well, everyone. First of all, um, Shan, tell me what you make of this senior judge that has been chosen as a special master. There was a bit of a compromise. It was Trump's person they put forth, but DOJ said, you know, of who you've chosen, we're okay with that. What do you make of him? Uh, it's a sharp move by DOJ. I mean, they got rid of the really extreme person, Huck, and they have this judge who obviously has some experience with national security issues. He was on the FISA court. But of course... FISA being that secret surveillance court that only certain judges look at, yeah. Right, exactly. But of course, that doesn't make him any kind of expert on executive privilege, and mm. that's what the whole Trump strategy is really about. So he should be a perfectly fine judge, uh, but I really do think that uh, we can talk about it later, but I think that opinion, her decision is just a travesty. Let's talk about it right now, Doug. Yeah. <laughs> talk about it right now. Yeah. What do you make of it? You know, look, I, I, I agree. I, I just, it just, it just doesn't right. seem to make a whole lot of sense. There were two things though, that to me that kind of stood out. Number one, she clarified something. The investigation goes on. She made sure because her first order was all over the place. And, but she made sure that the, the investigation goes on because the content of the documents in, in and of itself doesn't necessarily mean that they can't talk to witnesses, figure mm. out what happened with the documents. They're, they're, it's not but like it does a, hamstring them a little bit not to have access it, it, fully it to does, documents. It does for a little bit. But, it, that, you know, look, this is not we're not close to a decision on this. But you don't have to show somebody the document, you know, in a drug case or a fraud case like that. That's that's number one. You know, the other thing that 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 kind of struck me is that she has now given a member of the judiciary the ability to try to decide what's classified and not classified. Mm -hmm. That doesn't make any sense to me at all. Even with his experience on the FISA court. That is an executive branch decision. And whether he agrees with that decision or not, I'm not sure that that is a proper subject for the judiciary. Well, you think about it and the idea, and again, I think you're, to, to the larger point, yes, one could prosecute a case in a grand jury, for example, and talk about the drugs that were seized through witnesses. So the right. thought maybe is that you'd be able to talk about what was seized in that inventory without actually showing the classified documents. But he makes a great point, Doug. One of the reasons you also, even if they had the documents, couldn't show the grand jury is because what are you going to do? Give them all security clearances to hear right. the evidence? Right. And now you've got this idea of um, this judge being in a position to decide an issue that doesn't seem to be the issue that DOJ is looking yeah. at. I mean, the privilege issue is one thing that Trump's raising. Why is he harping on that? It's a winning one, he thinks? It's a winning one for him. and um, With the electorate, with, with, the, with his base. Okay. You know, he's able to communicate his messages to his base, and they like what, you know, it's like going to a rock concert. They love every song that he's singing, and they're going to sing along with it. But the challenge for Trump here is we're talking about one specific thing with um, what papers were at Mar-a-Lago and whether they should have been there or not. There's still criminal proceedings being investigated in Georgia, in New York. Obviously, the January 6th committee is going to have more public hearings. Mm. So, you know, whether Trump wins or loses on a minute detail, even though it's an important one, one way or another, on, on the Mar-a-Lago papers, there's still a whole lot more going on here. And that's why the, there's a feeling of quicksand around him as more and more people are cooperating and folding on. I mean, speaking of the idea of the rock band and every song that you love to have play, I mean, here's a common refrain, and you probably heard this particular chorus again. It's been stuck in people's head 
for the better part of, well, many years, ever since we heard Trump say, I could shoot someone on, I think, Fifth mm-hmm. Avenue and, and not have anything mm-hmm. reaction. There was a statement today on a radio show with Hugh Hewitt. And listen to what Trump said there. If it happened, I think you'd have problems in this country, the likes of which perhaps we've never seen before. I don't think the people of the United States would stand for it. What kind of problems, Mr. President? I think they'd have big problems. Big problems. I just don't think they'd stand for it. They will not, they will not sit still and stand for this ultimate of hoaxes. Just so we're clear what the it is, Shan, is if he were to be indicted. That was the reaction he said. There'd be so. big problems. Did anyone else remember the idea that there's been part of the investigation, a potential allegation of calling and inciting violence? Yeah, yeah that's ex- exactly what he's doing again. He's trying to do January 6th all over again. But it's a pretty impotent statement to make at this point, and it's very early in the investigation. However, I think his real ally in this is Judge Cannon, because it's really dangerous what she's done, this meddling of the judiciary in not only the national security issues, but she's meddling in the investigation. And also, you know, there's a danger to this idea that you can carve out what they can't look at but still ask questions because it sets the stage for a potential taint of the investigation. If later the special master says, hey, this was off bounds, but you somehow managed to blunder into it through your questions, that could cause the entire investigation to go down the toilet. What do you make of the deadline, November 30th? Obviously, it's after the midterms, but what do you make of it? You know, look, it's a deadline. It doesn't mean that he has to take that long to do that. And an additional thing, it, it doesn't stop him from doing kind of a rolling review of this, particularly with the classified. There is a whole subset of this that is classified, secret, whatever you want to call it. And then there's a lot of other documents out there. If I was the DOJ, I would try to do everything I could to implore this special master to let's look at this classified material, make rolling production, so to speak. It happens all the time yeah. in discovery, in criminal cases, mm. in civil cases. Bring that out. Let us get that So, because there is a national security concern and we need to get that issue straightened out. I mean, piecemeal is always their approach. I wonder how they'll prioritize which to look at first. That's going to be the big question. But The devil is in the details. We all know. Doug Jones, thank you so much. Shan and Doug High, stick around, because up next, when DNA works against a crime victim, in this case, a rape victim, why was she arrested years later? Now, the answer may have you thinking about how police are using DNA evidence nationwide. We'll talk about it next. A remarkable case in San Francisco, drawing attention to what happens to your DNA once it's in the hands of the police. A woman there is now suing the city. DNA from her rape kit was used by police to arrest her on theft charges and keep her locked up for weeks. Now, the theft charges were actually dropped after this case came to light. And the city did did pass an ordinance prohibiting cops from identifying suspects by using DNA from a rape kit. Doug, Shannon, April are back at the table now. I mean, April, you've been talking to your sources about this yeah. story, and the implications are pretty far-reaching. What do you make of it? I talked to a lot of lawyers, particularly um, former prosecutor, former mayor of Baltimore, and the current president of the University of Baltimore, Kurt Schmoke, and he said, this is an ethical breach. You can't do this. And he says, it looks like they would probably have to settle out of court because there could be so much exposed and and given that they don't want given in the San Francisco Police Department, 
um, if this thing actually goes to court. And he believes, like along with the other lawyers that I talked to, that there could be some kind of effort to create some kind of law to prevent this. He said, you cannot use evidence from one case for another. And especially you can't do that without asking the person for permission. Well, Shan, what's your take? Because, I mean, this is, and again, just so we're clear from what's happening, this was somebody who was a victim of rape. DNA was taken in an effort to try to capture the rapist. Mm -hmm. Then that DNA from the victim was used to charge her with the crime later on, unrelated to, obviously, the rape. What do you, as a prosecutor, think about this and the idea of this being used? There's no evidence that the, the cops knew the source of the DNA, perhaps, but what do you make of that? I think it's a terrible situation. It's reflective of a much bigger, complex problem about privacy issues and what mm-hmm. happens to our data, genetic history. But as a former sex crimes prosecutor, mm-hmm. we already know how hard it is for survivors to come forward. And the idea that this kind of information is going to happen is going to be a huge disincentive for them to want to come forward. And the other thing that people need to realize, we may not know this, taking the evidence from a rape kit is not exactly unintrusive. Um, It's extremely intrusive. It's extremely traumatic for someone who's already been traumatized. So having this kind of result is just outrageous. And it's a Band-Aid to say, okay, we can't use it from this case to other cases. They need to look at it from a bigger issue. But certainly that ordinance has been passed correctly that says you can't do this in future cases. And certainly from the perspective of the the politics of it, because it always comes back, right? We've had so many stories about the backlog of rape kits Mm -hmm. not being tested. But you also have this idea now of, well, hold on, if this could possibly solve a crime and you have this political flag that has to be waved that says we're tough on crime and not soft on crime, how do you think this plays out politically to those who are looking at issues of law enforcement and trust already? It's a very difficult and complicated issue. And and Sean correctly used the the word privacy. Mm. And the word privacy today means a whole lot more than it did, say, five or 10 years ago. Everybody who has a phone deals with privacy issues Mm -hmm. every day of their lives. And ultimately, this is going to be solved one way or another in courts and in legislatures. You know, when you think about this and who this impacts as well, I mean, you're talking about particularly rape victims who, if you mentioned the vulnerability, yeah. the idea of the absence of solving many of these crimes and these incentives, I wonder how this will play politically. What do you think, April? Politically, it's an invasion of privacy. Privacy, we've talked about it, social media. Uh, we've talked about phones. This is personal privacy. And it is, it's one of those red lines that you cannot cross. I am a victim. Why are you victimizing me yet again by taking my DNA wrongfully to go after another crime? Mm. It is, it's obtrusive, it's intrusive, all of the above. And of course, it's, again, it wasn't as if it was voluntarily handed over in the best of circumstances, right? right? This was something that was taken as part of the investigation. They even called her Jane Doe. They don't want to give her identity in the, in the case, they're calling her Jane Doe, but yet you're using her DNA for another crime. I wonder how many more cases like this are out there. We'll have to look and see and yeah. follow this story, everyone. Doug High, April Ryan, Shan Wu, thank you. You know, I want to take a moment now to remember a friend and a colleague, both in the legal world and someone you often saw right here on CNN, Paige Pate. He's someone we might very well have turned to for insight about a story just like the one we discussed here today. Paige died this week, and far too soon, at the age of just 55. 
in a swimming accident off the coast of Georgia. He was a trial lawyer for more than 25 years, a reliable voice on criminal defense and constitutional law and other high-profile cases. And I had the honor of appearing with Paige, as our colleagues have many times over the years. I want to bring in my legal experts now, CNN legal analyst Laura Coates, a former federal prosecutor, Paige Pate, criminal defense and constitutional attorney. That was back in 2017, and I really had just really started primarily in what I was doing, and Paige was always kind, always professional, and a very stand-up lawyer. And He co-founded the Georgia Innocence Project, which celebrates his legacy now as, quote, a fierce advocate for the criminally accused and unjustly convicted, adding, above all else, we will remember Paige's kindness and generosity, always willing to give anything he could to help and never asking for anything in return. Paige Pate is survived by his wife and his two beloved sons. Our hearts are with them tonight. Hey, that's it for us tonight. I'll be back tomorrow night. Don Lemon tonight starts right now. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.